Welcome to another episode of At Home with Leaders, the series that is part of the Leaders Performance Podcast. Its aim is to unearth stories and insights from the top people within high performance and what they're doing as sport returns to our lives and edges back to some sort of new normality. I'm Matthew Stone, Senior Product Manager here at the Leaders Performance Institute, and I'd like to say hello again to all the returning listeners and say a big welcome to those of you who are listening for the first time. It is a pleasure to have you with us. We're delighted this podcast is sponsored by Kaiser, who are also a main partner of the Leaders Performance Institute. Kaiser have been changing the world of fitness for over 40 years and we're proud to have been partnered with them ourselves for nearly a decade. More than 80% of the top professional sports teams in the world now train with Kaiser exercise equipment. And if you want to join them, then get in touch with us at Leaders for an intro to one of the team or head to kaiser.com to find out more. In a moment, you'll be listening to a conversation with Terry Francona discussing organisational alignment, making difficult decisions and preparing and recovering from competition as a leader. As you can probably guess, these are the sorts of hot topics that are on the minds of our network on a weekly basis too. With this in mind, we're only a couple of weeks away from our Virtual Leaders Meet Total High Performance event on the 10th and 11th of November. If you're a member, then hopefully you'll be tuning in to listen to the likes of Scott Robertson from the Crusaders, Stuart Lancaster from Leinster Rugby, as well as speakers from McLaren Racing, the British Army and Kim Wiley from Farfetched. If you're not a member but would love to learn out more about how to become one, then head over to leadersinsport.com forward slash performance to find out more about becoming part of the home of Total High Performance. Now on to today's episode, as always, it's a pleasure to have my co-host from California alongside me once again, founder and CEO of Gaines Group, it's Mr. Steve Gira. How is LA today, Steve? LA is excited. This is the Dodgers and Lakers town. And so within the last 21 days, both organizations have in the, in the year of all years uh, managed to win you know, an NBA title. And then last night, the Dodgers won in a World Series. Um, so it's uh, the, the, the city here... Um, as soon, literally, as soon as that last strike was thrown, um, I could hear fireworks going off like crazy all all over the city. Um, it was pretty amazing last night, um, and, and what an amazing Major League Baseball season! And really excited to talk to our guest today about kind of the trials and tribulations that everyone kind of went through throughout all of Major League Baseball and what it was like to run a club during this past uh, season. Absolutely, yeah. LA must be buzzing right now, maybe slightly behind closed doors, but um, I'm sure I'm sure it's buzzing nonetheless. Now, our guest today is someone I met back in 2015, I believe, when he flew over to uh, take part in our PA to Arsenal's London Colney training ground, and then he spoke at the Sports Performance Summit at the Emirates Stadium alongside the late and great Ken Ravitza. Uh, it's two-time World Series champion and current manager of the Cleveland Indians. It's Terry Francona. Good morning, Terry. How are you today? Good morning, guys. How are you? Yes, not too bad. We were saying just before we came on that uh, you know, I'm here in London. You guys are on the West Coast in, in America. How is Arizona at the moment? Well, we're not celebrating two championships like Steve, <laughs> but the sun is shining and it's gorgeous out here. So I'm, I'm doing OK. We'll get stuck in straight away. And these conversations are moving a little bit away from lockdown and from COVID and everything like that. But I must ask, you know, straight off the bat, how how are you? Um, you know, alongside the coronavirus related you know, problems, you've had a bit of a health scare of yourself, but hopefully you're OK and on the mend now. You know what? I appreciate you asking, and I, I do think I'm on the mend. It was a challenging year on a number of fronts, but physically for me, everything seemed to hit me at once. But fortunately, I do think I'm on the mend because I don't want to quit doing my job yet. Um, I'm going to be 62 next year, but I also want to be healthy enough where I can do my job and not feel like I'm letting people down. Terry, how, how, do, how, how difficult does that become over time to kind of balance balance those things out? Like the, 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 the focus and energy you have to put into the club and then also the focus and 
energy you have to put into yourself. I think a lot of times that gets glossed over for coaches um, as they kind of go through their their development process and their and their career process. You know how 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 difficult is that to balance those things out? I don't think I have a balance, and 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 people have asked me that before. You know about perspective or balance. And I don't think I have any, and I don't think most coaches do. You know, the idea, I think, is to put the organization and the players first and yourself always way lagging behind. I think that's the best way to to excel as a team. I don't know it's the best way to excel <laughs> with a person's health, though. So as you get older, it gets harder. You know, every year I come home, it takes me longer to recharge. Now, the good part of that is that I still do get recharged. And come the first of the year, I'm every bit as excited to start the year as I was the year before. It just takes me a little longer, and that's just being honest. And this year was was especially tough for so many different reasons. Did, did you do anything different to prepare for the uh, – once you knew that, you know, we, we Major League Baseball was going to play, did you did you do anything different to prepare, or did you just not have any time? And, and how did you kind of prepare the team to handle the contingencies around this season? Guys, we did so many things different, and we learned so much. We even had a, we had a Zoom call yesterday, and I think the consensus was that we learned things during this pandemic that we will use moving forward even when we get back to the normal baseball season. I go back to when we left spring training originally, my immediate bosses are, are Mike Chernoff and Chris Antonetti, and they took over like nobody's business. I mean, they were honest. They were upfront. They were, it was first and foremost, let's get everybody safely home to where they need to be. We're not worried about baseball right now. After a time passed, then we started to think, okay, how are we going to get ready for when we get back to baseball? And we had so much good communication and we literally had a team meeting I believe it was May 15th because that would have been day one of spring training. Yet we hadn't seen anybody in two months. And we told the players, this is day one. And when we lay eyes on you, it's going to be day 22, but we got to be ready for that. And our players did an outstanding job of being ready. They came in so ready. And then once they got there, the biggest thing we told them was, hey, look, this is going to be different than anything you've ever done. At every turn, you can either roll your eyes and complain, or you can embrace the challenge. And our guys did a good job of embracing it. From a leadership and coaching perspective specifically, what did you take out of the lockdown? Were there maybe some gaps that you identified in the way that you approached leading the organization? You know, you mentioned there were a couple of good hidden surprises there maybe that you, you think you'll keep implemented within the team and the organization going forward. What, what were those sorts of things that you identified? Well, I certainly learned how to use Zoom. Um, <laughs> Didn't we all? We, I mean, I probably did two or three Zoom calls a day, whether it was with coaches, baseball ops, players, just to stay in touch. We even talked to the minor league coaches about strategy, and it was some of it was really fun. But we stayed in touch, and even though it's is not as fulfilling as being face to face with somebody in person, because that's something I really, really enjoy. It still kept us in touch, and I think it was good for everybody. Terry, you know, you've uh, 
when you think about like Major League Baseball's response as as a whole, you know, you 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 obviously along with Chris and Mike led the lit Indian kind of response to this. Um, but when you think about Major League Baseball's response, um, how do you think that that went? How do you think that the, the entire league kind of handled it? And and what do you anticipate happening over the next couple months as we as we try and prepare and basically try and do it all over again? That's a really interesting. The, the second part of your question, I have no idea. Because it's hard for me to believe that we're just going to show up in February in spring training yeah. and everything's going to be back to normal. I just think that seems like a reach. So, you know, hopefully Major League Baseball will, will stay ahead of it and give us guidance as we go so we know what to do. Because, man, it, it's, you know, it's a lot. I do think they were so prepared. And then I take it a step further. In Cleveland, our medical staff, they stayed on everybody. I mean, from the minute we walked in that door, we were probably in the safest place in our environment at the ballpark than we were when we left the ballpark. Our medical people did a great job of leading it and explaining to players why we needed to do this. And how, uh, how, how do you think the players have kind of responded? Like when you, when you think about your, you, know, you, you talked about your players just kind of buying all in and, and being excited to get back. Um, you know, athletes in general, like it seems like they've, when they've returned to sport, they've really enjoyed kind of actually taking on a little bit more greater responsibility for their training and more greater responsibility for their preparation. Did you experience that same thing? Was there, so I guess in other words, right, just cutting to the chase, I think in the last decade or so, people have talked a lot about like, you know, players feeling a little bit you know, entitled and whatnot. And it seems like this has been a moment where like, no, we've actually seen that players actually, they'll do the hard work and they'll actually put the work in when, when required to do so. I've found that if you're organized, players will work really hard. If you're not organized, you might as well send them home because they're not going to get done what they need to. In, in this day and age of not just baseball, but sports, players work so hard. Um, you know, we all get caught up into, hey, well, this is not how we did it when I was playing. They have access to so much good information, technology, um, the ability to work out. You know, it, it's a 12-month it's a job now. And, and they, they come into camp and they are strong. They're ready to go. They're athletic. It's, it's impressive. You're right. With, with today's younger people, there is a little sense of entitlement at times. It's not just baseball. That's in life. But you try never to sacrifice your principles or what you believe in. And that's part of the teaching. Over the last, you know, you, you've, you've, uh, you've been in baseball for a long time and uh, you've had a tremendous amount of success. Um, you know, thinking back to your days from, you know, the Red Sox all the way through here, the game is game has changed quite a bit. Like how that game last night was played and some of the decisions that were made, obviously being more driven by, you know, s some numbers and, and analytics. And, and, and now we're starting to see like the, you know, the drive lines of the world and like the Trevor, ba you mean you, you up close and personal with Trevor Bauer and like his, like how he kind of re retooled himself as a pitcher um, over the last couple of years and really focused on like, you know, how, how we could use spin rate and other, other things to, to basically enhance himself. How much has the game really fundamentally changed in the last 20 to 30 years? Do you think? It certainly has. And you just gave several examples of, of some of the reasons why the game has changed, you know, with analytics becoming so prevalent, it can change the way a manager runs the game. And I think the, the best way I can describe it, at least the healthy 
healthiest way I could describe it is when you have a combination of both. When you take the experience from people on the field and you combine it with the analytic of the guys upstairs and both sides have a mutual respect for each other, that's when it has a chance to be really special. So I guess the word I'm looking at is collaboration, but it's got to be a true collaboration. It can't be an us versus them and a division. It's got to be how do we make each other better? Chris and Mike, and, you know, having been around Chris um, and Mike, you know, and Nettie, I mean, he's just, he's, uh, I think, you know, there, there are a few people who are like great at running organizations. I think, you know, obviously Andrew Friedman, Shapiro, you know, and then Aunt Nettie is just like, you know, is, is also one of the absolute top class people, in my opinion. How, how does that collaboration kind of work between you, him, Mike, and, and, and then the rest of your coaching staff? Um, how, how do you, how have you guys kind of built, you know, this Indians roster and this Indians team over the last 10 years? How, how close do you guys really work together? Well, we very close. And, and I give Chris and Cherney so much credit for creating an environment where it's a safe environment, you know, to give an opinion because, you know, to be blunt, good baseball people are going to have strong opinions. And I think the bosses appreciate strong opinions as long as they're thought out and they're not just blurted out. And again, you're not going to agree on everything. One of the biggest things I tell the guys all the time is I appreciate the analytics, but I also have questions because if they want me to use those during a game, I want to know how they're, they get their, they've arrived at their decisions. And it's not that I don't trust them. I just want to understand it. And the more I understand it, I think the better we can use it. You know, you can make all these analytics look great in a PowerPoint or however, but if it's not able to be used during the game, we've asked a lot of guys to work and wasted a lot of time. So we need to make it applicable for people like me who don't have an Ivy League education. And our guys are great at that. And then a big, a big part of that, I'm, I'm guessing, is also like, you know, getting your coaches accustomed to that and uh, your coach is kind of um, used to that. Chris Anthony's spoken um, considerably of like coaching up people behind the scenes and like, how do, you, how do you work with your coaches to get them used to the newness of their roles and what worked well and what, what do you think needs to improve in 2021? Well, our, our, I, I look uh, as an example, our pitching department. Uh, It's led by Carl Willis, who's our major league pitching coach, but we have a bullpen coach. We have an assistant pitching coach. We have a pitching coordinator in Eric Bender, and they pretty much meet every day. And I give Carl so much credit because you have to be confident in what you're doing to allow other people the comfort to be so, to give opinions and to share opinions and feel safe in sharing those opinions. And then Carl takes what he thinks is pertinent and he'll sometimes you know, sift through what he thinks maybe we need to stay away from. But I give him so much credit just because he allows that group the ability to be creative. And everybody's seen how much success our young pitching has had coming to the major leagues. And they're a big part of that. And what's your um, what's your attitude to, to, you know, you look ahead to the, to the next season, it will come around thick and fast. I know you're recharging now, but there will be some difficult managerial decisions, you know, to be made, which there are every off season. But when the future is still so unknown because of the situation in the world and and within your sport, you know, will you, will you ask you change to making those decisions, considering you know the way things are? Or will it be the same process that you go through every off season? Well, and I'll come back to a statement that I'm sure you've heard a thousand times. 
you know, you try to control what you can control mm. and the things that are out of your control is there's no sense in wasting energy. I mean, I think it's no secret that we're probably going to get younger next year than we have in a while. There's going to be some younger players get a chance to play. And it's actually, once you kind of come to that conclusion, it's kind of refreshing to have a new challenge. I know I've been on the phone the last couple of nights with some guys that weren't on our team last year. And I was talking to them about, hey, you know, give yourself a chance when you come to spring training to be ready to show what you can do. You know, nobody can guarantee somebody's going to have a high batting average or, or, or strike people out. But what you can guarantee is that you're physically and mentally ready to show what you can do. And after I got off the phone with those guys, man, it was kind of fun. You know, it's like we're four months away from next year's spring training. But, you know, you kind of look down and your palms are sweating a little bit and you're pacing around the house. And it's fun to do that kind of stuff. And that, you know, you, you alluded to it there and, you know, there are hundreds of teams, organizations who are going to have more financial constraints in the months and seasons ahead. You know, you won't be alone. So, you know, how will you pivot to ensure that, you know, young players are, are game ready? You mentioned it today, I think communication starting earlier in the off season is obviously so important, but how else will you and your coaching staff and all the coordinators make sure that these young players are, are, are ready and will be game ready when it comes to spring training? Well, I believe we've already done a really good job. Our strength and conditioning guys, our, our medical people, they check in with our players. Everybody has a program during the off season. So when they show up in February in Goodyear, there aren't any surprises. Now, I do think we learned this year that maybe we can do a little bit more during the off season. But the one thing you have to remember is during the pandemic, you know, in March, April, and May, when we weren't playing, that was during our season. So we had access to our players a lot more readily, and it was easy. This is now their off season, and we need to respect that. So we're trying to figure out what's the proper amount of communication to have where you're checking in on guys, but you're not doing too much. And that's what we talked about yesterday. Is alignment very important then, you know, coming from yourself and Chris and, and Mike, but all the way through to all your staff, is that aligned message and exactly, you know, what you're trying to achieve in this off season? And, and ahead? have you worked a lot on that alignment piece? I guess a lot of that comes from just continually, you know, speaking to your staff on a regular basis. That That's a really good point you just made. You know, people ask me all the time about the amount of meetings we have, and we really don't. And the reason being is that we communicate so much and, and so regularly and so consistently, and I use the word safe all the time, but that's a good word, that we don't need meetings. Our messaging is consistent, and it's because we believe together what we believe in. You know, when I came to Cleveland, the reason I came was because of the people. And that has done nothing but get stronger, in my opinion. You know, do we get challenged? Oh, of course. But going through challenges with people that you respect and care about can be really gratifying. From, and from your perspective there, you know, you talked about the people. I think that's such, such an important point. Is there a, um, a certain set of values or a type of person that you look for when you bring someone into your coaching staff or, or any of your staff? Uh, I presume it's a pretty rigorous process to make sure they're going to fit your culture correctly. You know, I was fortunate when I came to, you know, when I came to Cleveland eight years ago, that was one of the things we talked about when we were hiring coaches. And part of what I told them was, 
you know, okay, we're going to be new, but we don't want to be too new. So we wanted to have some of the guys that had been there to, to stay on the staff. I, I wanted to bring in a guy named Brad Mills who had been at my side forever because I thought he was the best coach I've ever been around and he made me better. And then for the remaining coaches, what we did, and I think this was interesting, we didn't come up with names. We came up with what we wanted to look for in that coach. And we put down characteristics we were looking for. And then we tried to add names to that list. Uh, like we ended up with Mickey Calloway as our pitching coach. I had never met Mickey before. And it ended up being a great hire. But it just goes to show you, you don't have to have you know one of your best buddies sitting next to you for them to be a great coach. I really liked our process. I thought it was really enlightening and I thought it helped get it, helped us get really good coaches. Terry, how, how important is when you talk about like the, the coach development and identifying the coaches that you want to put on your staff, how much do you think about, you know, some of these coaches as when you identify one, you're like, man, th this one's got a chance to be a manager. This one's got a chance to be the top guy. Did you think about that when you're when you're grooming some of your young coaches? And do you and do you pay either a little special attention or do you pull a guy underneath your wing and say, hey, I think you actually have a shot potentially become the top guy. And, and, and I want to I want to work with you on that. No, not necessarily like that, because I would never tell anybody that they don't have a shot. Yeah, because I don't think that's for, for me to say. I'll give you a good example. Kevin Cash, who they just got eliminated last night yep. you know, in the World Series. We hired him as our bullpen coach uh, my, when I went to Cleveland. And we knew we were going to lose him at some point just because he was so special. Now, we lost him probably quicker than we anticipated. But I think everybody's seen just how special he is. He had the ability to impact everybody in our organization and that's not the easiest thing to do when you're sitting out in the bullpen for three hours during a game. But he watched everything. He kept his eyes open. He asked good questions. And the biggest thing was he cared about the players. And it became so evident right from the very first day. And you watch him now, and it's only growing. And 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 then you also you you coached um, a, a guy who had a pretty pretty damn big um, stolen base um, in 2004 for you who also was the on the other side of the you know, mound the other day um, or or last night and Dave Roberts did you when you when you coach you didn't you didn't you didn't coach Roberts for too long as far as I remember but did you did you see something in him where you were like hey yeah he, he could potentially end up being a manager you know when Davey came over he came over for half a year but. And, and it was the it was the prototypical speech where he was used to playing every day. He wasn't going to play every day for us. And you tell him, hey, kids, stay ready because you never know. Well, my goodness, you talk about living that out. You know, when that was time for that stolen base, he was as ready as you could be. And because of it. You know, it's 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 a pretty big mark in baseball history. It was fun for me to sit back and watch two guys that I really care about, you know, go back and forth during the World Series and to see how they've grown. I, I do think the one thing you gotta remember is when you're when you're playing, you're desperately trying to win so bad that I'm not sure you take the time to look at somebody and think, is he, would he be a good coach? Would he be a good manager? You know, you're trying so hard to put him in a position where they can succeed on the field that you almost get tunnel vision during that time. Let's, uh, let's break it down really quick on, on this one too, though. What, what are the characteristics that make a good manager in major league baseball, a good top guy? What, what, what are, what are some of the characteristics that, that you think helped you get to where you're at today? 
Well, I think what people first probably say is expertise during the game. And I think that's the easy part. You know, I'm going to do what I'm going to do during the game. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. And I think you need to be confident enough in what you're doing that you make your move. When the game's over, you answer the questions and then you don't run to see how you're being perceived in the media the next day. You move on and that takes some confidence. But the very biggest thing I think, and I said this earlier, is you need to put the players and the organization first and yourself way behind lagging second. I felt that way back in AA Birmingham when I was making $31,000 a year. And I still feel that way, you know, somewhat 25, 26 years later in Cleveland. Um, I just think it works. I think if you're putting yourself ahead of the players, players are going to see through that and it doesn't work. Players today in Major League Baseball, it seems like there's there, there are more teams that platoon players um, where they're kind of moving players around. And uh, I mean, the Dodgers are a good example of that. They got a lot of players who aren't necessarily playing every single day. A lot of situational um, decisions are being made, et cetera, et cetera. How difficult do you think it is for players when they're not playing every single day, or they are being used in in more of a platoon fashion? Um, how difficult, at, at, from a manager to player, is it to kind of describe and tell them like why that is? You know, basically just dealing with players and, and letting them know why they're not necessarily playing every single day. Um, or, or how you have to kind of manage their ability and their ego all at the same time. That's a great thought you just talked about. And at the beginning, you were talking about how hard it was for players. And I was going to pivot that and say it's also hard and it's a challenge for managers. You know, every manager has different challenges in different markets. You know, it's easy to say, well, the Dodgers have a high payroll. They should be good. But the way they do things, you know, like you alluded to, in platooning guys, and they're platooning guys that are making a lot of money. A lot of money, yeah. <laughs> so so Dave Roberts has a challenge in front of him where, yeah, they've got a lot of great players, but he's got to make it work in that room of 25, 28 guys where they're all pulling in the same direction. And it's pretty obvious that he's done a pretty damn good job of that. Kevin Cash has done the same thing with a small market team you know, down in Tampa. So everybody has different challenges, but I used to laugh when people would say, Joe Torrey, you know, what did Joe Torrey do? He had a great team and they had a big payroll. They were in New York City. George Steinbrenner was the owner and Joe made it easy for the players just to play baseball. He kept the noise. He absorbed all the noise and he allowed them to play. And I thought that was so terrific on his part. There seems to be a bit, you know, the, the, the phrase that springs to mind is expectation management there. You know, I think it, I was going to bring up in the, in the, on the topic of youngsters specifically, but I guess it's applicable to all players. I mean, the, do your conversations and practice sessions with, you know, coaches and players themselves, they must be framed differently from, from player to player. And, and, and what, to, to what extent is that? And, you know, the conversations you have in the, in the clubhouse and, and you know, at practice uh, around that expectation management with every single player, it must be a different scenario for each each individual that is you know in your in your in your roster. 
you know, some of the communication I think is is team driven and completely inclusive of the team. And then there's times when you talk to guys one on one. I try to explain to our team that if we use our entire team and we complement each other, we're going to be a better team. It's not an indictment on what you can't do. It's just the idea that if we've complemented each other the right way, we're going to be better. And I also explained to him that I have an obligation to do what I think is best for our team to win. But I also have an obligation to explain to players why I'm doing something and that they're more than welcome to always come in and talk to me about it. But just to remember, if they're not putting the team first, if they're putting their own personal agenda first, that they're going to get some honesty back from me and be ready for that. And Terry, so I think there's also a conversation to be had around risk taking as it pertains to that, though, too, right? Because like, what what's your attitude on players taking risks on the field, and and how does that, you know, how, how do you look to provide space to actually allow them to be a little bit more creative, or is that just not part of the equation? No, it, it's a huge part of the equation. We talk to our guys all the time about not wanting to point them from point A to B to C to D. We feel like if they have the freedom to be athletic we have the chance to be a much more dynamic team. Now, to do that, they have to understand what's expected of them during a game because we can't just freelance or, you know, because you you get 27 outs a game and if you give away a handful, you're hurting your chances to win. But I've found that if you talk to players and ask them, hey, what are you thinking here? They start to understand and the more they understand, the more you can turn them loose and allow them to be athletic, to be uh, safe. And, and when there's a mistake, you can't just, you know, react, you know, because players are going to make mistakes and they have to, they can't play the game worrying that if they make a mistake, you're going to jump down their throat because then they're going to play too cautious and that doesn't help anybody. Do you think generationally players are taking more risks now? Are they more creative? Do you think that the younger players that you see coming through or in the last five years or so, players you consider to be maybe younger or in this millennial or Gen Z realm, are they kind of built differently than maybe the players uh, you know, that you were managing at the start of your career? Is, can, you, do you, can you see that generational difference at all? Yeah, I think I think we all do. And I don't think it's just baseball. I mean, when you talk about being creative, you know, you see now the bat flips and a little more exuberance on the field than maybe you would have 20 or 30 years ago. And what I've tried to tell our guys is that's okay because, you know, again, guys are younger and times do change a little bit, but we never want to sacrifice what we're doing on the field at the expense of maybe showing something off the field. You know, play the game right always and the other things take care of themselves. And I've always felt really strongly about, we talk to our guys about that all the time. When you hit a ball, if you're going to admire it, it better be a home run because we just feel so strongly that we need to push the envelope, but also push the envelope while being intelligent. That's probably the best way I could say it. Terry, does it, do you think that that applies to um, like, so the, 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 I mean, players are more socially aware than they've I don't know if they've ever been, but they they definitely have more of a platform to to talk socially about, you know, and this summer's, you know, with social injustice, uh, the BLM movement, um, everything kind of going on when players speak out, you know, as is happening across sport right now. 
what are the implications for team spirit and cohesion? Does it bring teams together or can it, it can or can it rip them apart? Well, I think if you look back some years ago, I think it had a chance to maybe hurt some teams. And I think that was wrong. We actually met about just what you're talking about several times in our spring training 2.0 because, you know, it was coming off of the the George Floyd uh, murder and, you know, there was so much unrest and we just decided to try to tackle it head on. And our guys were unbelievable in their maturity and the way they talked about it. And and we, we certainly didn't figure out all the world's problems, but I think it was really good to talk about it in an open environment and to allow people their opinions. And, and like I said, in a, in a space where they felt safe and secure and, and respectful to their teammates. I think there's been a, you know, I think there's been a lot of learning that's gone on over the last six months in, in what you're talking about there, but also just in terms of adapting to the, to the new world. How at the Indians do you view learning on, on kind of a, a wider view and, and, it, and its impacts of that? I know you have a, a great guy called Jay Hennessy at the organisation who focuses a lot on all things culture and learning and development. So, so how as an organisation do you think about learning and also how do you implement things that you take from outside the organization that you learn and then implement them back into into what you try and do every single day? Yeah, I don't even know what Jay Hennessy's title is and it doesn't matter. I've told Jay so many times, the more you talk, the better off we are. I mean, with his background and what he's accomplished and what he's been a part of, when he speaks, people listen, myself included. Uh, he has started to lead so many of these Zoom call meetings. And I'm telling you, man, when he talks, people listen. And we're so fortunate to have him. And like I said, I don't even know what his title is, but it doesn't matter because he's he doesn't just talk the talk. He's walked the walk and everybody knows it. So you've been at the Indians for, for, for seven seasons now, right? Eight. Uh, eight seasons. Shit. Sorry about eight. that. Um, eight. Going fast. Yeah. Yeah. This truncated one. Um, and, and you were at the Red Sox for a similar amount of time. You know, how, 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 how as a manager, how do you evolve um, in the environment that you're working in and make sure that it remains fresh and progressive? Boy, that's, that's a great question because I do believe there are times when a manager has a shelf life or a coach and I don't want that to happen. And it's not just with your, the people you work for, it's with the players. So you have to keep the message fresh, but you also have to be consistent. And that is a wonderful topic. And it's something I think about a lot because I don't want there to be a shelf life in Cleveland. You know, I I, I don't think the old adage that you're hired to be fired necessarily has to always be true. I'd like to think that there might come a time where, you know what, I'm just ready to retire and walk away successfully as opposed to be showing the door because your message got old. Yeah, absolutely. I'm sure I think all the sports changing like that now and when it comes to environment, it's, it's being thought about a, a huge amount more. Um, just, a, just a final one from me, Terry, you know, it's, it's not a new problem, but like many sports, there are games multiple times a week, sometimes more than once once a day. So how do you continue to balance that short term versus versus long term, you know, in terms of winning games on a regular basis, but also looking to the future? I know you, you touched upon the youngsters earlier, but, you know, that I think a lot of people from outside of baseball especially here in Europe, they look they look to you guys and think, how do they do it? You know, how do you win games day after day or try to win games day after day, but also think about 
where the organization needs to be in 12, 18 months time. So any tips on, you know, or, or any thoughts from, from you on how you balance that short term you know, versus I, long term? I, I laugh because as a manager or a head coach, you want to win every day right now. And I look at Chris and Cherney and they're more caretakers of the organization. You know, they have to look not only for next week, but for next year and beyond. And I try to respect that. Um, when making decisions during a game, I try to be cognizant of the fact that, yeah, today is important, but so is tomorrow and the next day and the next day, and that'll lead into the next month and the next year. We, we try to always make decisions that are not only going to help us in the present, but being aware and cognizant of the future. And Terry, the future is uh, right around the corner for, for next season, right? You, you said it earlier, you know, um, thinking that we're going to pick this up in February um, like normal you know, pre-COVID is, is probably not realistic. But what, what, what are you going to do over the course of the next couple months to, to prepare yourself for next season? The biggest thing I need to do right now, and I said I, I've been back in Tucson, Arizona for about three weeks, is getting physically stronger so I can do my job. You know, as a manager, so many people rely on you, and I felt like I let them down, and I don't want to do that. So I'm trying to get myself, and again, I don't need to prepare like a 22-year-old, but I need to get myself in a position where I can stand the rigors of a season and be able to be there for the people that need me so I can do my job right. And so I'll, I'm going to spend some time trying to get a little healthy here. And in the meantime, I'll, I pick up the phone every day or so and try to touch, try to talk to one of our players. You know, something will hit me when I'm driving and I'll think, you know what, I need to call him and, and tell him that. And it's fun because when you get off the phone after that, you kind of feel a little bit invigorated and it's good for everybody. That's great. Yeah. And, and having been around you in the past and in, uh, in the organization, um, I'm sure you guys are going to are going to be uh, well, well positioned when and, and, and no matter how next season uh, kicks off. Um, so that was terrific. Um, always a joy to speak with you. I appreciate the insight and, uh, and spending some time with us today. Um, good luck for the rest. Of, enjoy. Enjoy uh, the rest of your fall and look forward to seeing you um, back in Cleveland next season. Guys, thanks so much. I sure did enjoy it. I appreciate it. Uh, the best for you guys also. No, not at all. It was, uh, we said before coming online, you know, it was, we had some fun when you were in London. So hopefully when some normality resumes, you can get back over and, you know, we can, we can meet face to face once again. But really do appreciate your time, Terry, and, you know, some great people alongside you with Chris and Mike. And please send our best wishes to, to them and the rest of the organization. I will for sure. Thanks for having me. And I would love to come back. Thanks, Tito. That's it for another episode. But if you've enjoyed these podcasts, and you can find many more like it on the Leaders Content Hub as well as on Spotify, iTunes or your preferred platform. Also check us out at Leaders underscore Insights on Twitter as we'll post all our content online there too. Terry spoke on stage in 2015 and that session as well as 12 years worth of other event videos are available to our members online to watch on demand. So if you want to access all the content, virtual learning, events and also engage with over 700 members from 150 teams, in 25 countries and 20 sports worldwide, then head over to leadersinsport.com forward slash performance to learn more about the home of Total High Performance. Thanks to our podcast sponsor, Kaiser, who, as I said earlier, are the main partners of the Leaders Performance Institute. Kaiser have been leading the way in exercise equipment for 40 years and more than 80% of the top professional sports teams in the world now put their trust in them. If you want to join them, then get in touch with us at Leaders for an intro to one of the team or head to kaiser.com to find out more.
Once again, thank you to John, Luke and all the content team behind the scenes for making this all possible. You're a brilliant support and providing some brilliant questions for us to ask. We hope you're all enjoying these conversations. Until next time, stay safe and keep thinking. Speak soon. <laughs>